Okay, we are continuing the book of Hosea, and today we're actually going to start looking at the actual book of Hosea. Um, if you missed last week, uh, the recording is on the website, and that has a lot of the introductory material. Uh, there is a handout this week, and I'm trying to up my game on the handouts, so the handout this week is in the back if you don't have one. Um, it is... There's fill in the blank, and don't worry, I'll put the answers on the slide so you don't have to wonder what the answer is. But you will also notice on the handout that there are cross-references under each point. Those are the cross-references that I will be mentioning in the class. Some of them we'll go to, some of them we won't. But you have them on the handout, so that way if you want to go home and look a little bit further into this, you can do that. So last week we looked at verse 1 of chapter 1, and that was it. And we did a basic introduction, and we learned some things about Hosea, the man. We learned that Hosea is a resident of the northern kingdom, and his prophecies are primarily focused on the northern kingdom of Israel. We learned he's a man of many words. He's a literary craftsman. He, he's really good at putting together arguments and illustrations and using metaphor. And we concluded from that he's well-educated, we also said that he's a man of the word. He's knowledgeable of scripture. He knows his Old Testament, primarily the Pentateuch is what he had. And he refers back to it constantly and makes allusions to it. And we also saw he had a strong knowledge of the covenants. We saw that he referred back to the Abrahamic covenant. And then we looked at the political history of Israel, and I confused everybody and we went through this long list of kings. You guys remember that? And we saw how the nation was divided into two kingdoms. We saw that was a judgment of God on the nation of Israel, specifically on Solomon for his unfaithfulness. We saw the northern kings, starting with Jeroboam, were wicked and evil. And after Jeroboam, the north went through king after king after king, and most of them were assassinated. Well, starting in verse 2, God is going to speak through Hosea, and now he's not going to be describing the political history. He's going to be describing the moral and the spiritual condition of the northern kingdom of Israel. And he's going to do that by using a real-life metaphor. He's going to put together a real-life metaphor so that you can understand just how wretched the northern kingdom has become and how unfaithful they are to Yahweh. And the real-life metaphor is going to be Hosea. Hosea is going to be the metaphor, specifically his marriage to a woman named Gomer. Let's look at Hosea chapter 1. Let's read verse 2. This is the first point on your handout. Verses 2 and 3. Israel's harlotry. Israel's harlotry. Notice in verse 2, he says, When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, this is the start of Hosea's prophetic ministry. His ministry was likely starting in the reign of Jeroboam II. If you have the chart from last week, Jeroboam II, I think, was around 793, somewhere around there. And this is likely occurring towards the end of Jeroboam II's reign. How do we know that? Well, first of all, Jeroboam is named in verse 1. 
at the end of the verse, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So when God first spoke to Hosea, Jeroboam II was in power. Verse 4 describes events that would happen after Jeroboam's reign, but it speaks of those events in a future tense. It's talking about what will occur in verse 4. And so it's good conclusion to say that God is speaking to Hosea at the end of Jeroboam's reign. I also want you to note this little phrase, he spoke through Hosea. It's a technical term that's applied to Yahweh. And the question is, is he speaking through Hosea or is he speaking to Hosea? Because it could be either one. The construction here is similar to Habakkuk 2.1. He says, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Same construction. But in Habakkuk 2, the very next verse, Habakkuk is waiting for God to answer him. And he actually says, I'm going to wait for you to answer. And so there it seems more like it's a conversation between Habakkuk and God. And that's likely what's happening here. God is speaking directly to Hosea. This is a conversation. And he is receiving direct communication from God. Notice verse 2 again. He says, The Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. Okay, we have to answer a very important question. What does he mean by harlotry? What is he referring to? The term itself refers to the status and the practice of fornication. It's used in Genesis 38 referring to Tamar when her brother said, should she be treated as a harlot? Should she be treated as someone who practices and lives a life of immorality? It's, in, it's also applied to people who are merely inclined to sexual immorality. What, not, whether or not they're actually doing it, they're inclined in that way. It's been said that Gomer was a prostitute, and our term for that is that's someone who's actually selling a, a service. This is not the technical term for that kind of lifestyle. So we don't have to end with that conclusion. She's a street walker or she's a temple prostitute. We don't have to end there. It just refers to being sexually immoral in general. And the term is usually applied to women. Most of its uses are applied to women. It is used twice to refer to men, but there are other terms that scriptures use to refer to man. So the term here just refers to her being sexually immoral, being unfaithful in that realm. God tells Hosea, go find a sexually immoral woman and marry her. That is what verse 2 says. And this has caused a lot of people a lot of problems. They don't like this. And when you read the commentaries, you find out they don't like this at all. This, so this is our first interpretive challenge, and I want to spend a little time on it because, well, if you ever read a commentary on it and you go and study it, you're going to hear a whole lot of people say something very different. And I think their main concern is that they think that God telling a prophet to marry an immoral woman is somehow immoral. That if we take the text for what it says, God must be doing something sinful. One commentator wrote, The most telling objection is that it is incomprehensible that God would command a prophet to do something morally evil to intensify his message. 
And he says, look, if God tells Hosea to marry an immoral person, that in itself is immoral. And it's incomprehensible that God would do that. But the same commentator, the same guy just a few pages away, says an act is immoral only if it violates a clear command of God. Okay, so did God ever give a command saying prophets could not marry immoral women? Well, there is a command in Leviticus 21, verse 7. It's a command to Levitical priests. They shall not take a woman who is profaned by harlotry, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for he is holy to his God. That is a command specifically for priests, not prophets. There is nothing in the Old Testament that says a prophet marrying an immoral woman is somehow immoral. It may not be what we would recommend someone do, but it's not immoral. And it in no way impugns the integrity or the character of God. God's not commanding him to do something immoral. And there are many who still reject the plain meaning of the text. And they say, well, that's fine because I still don't think God would ever command a prophet to do this. And they go through great lengths to make the text mean something other than what it says. Notice, look at the text again, verse 2. Hosea is commanded to marry a woman of harlotry. That's what it says, right? Verse 3, he goes out and he marries a woman named Gomer. Is that what the text says? I'm looking for some responses. Is that what your Bible says? Okay, I'm not misreading this, am I? Okay. They claim that Gomer was not immoral when Hosea met her that she was a pure, faithful woman, and that she was not immoral. She became immoral after the marriage. I have six commentaries on my desk at home for the book of Hosea. Five out of the six make this argument. The text does not mean what it says. Do you see why I'm bringing this up? It does not mean what it says. The text is wrong. In fact, one commentator went through four or five pages of a lexical study on the word harlotry. And at the end of his lexical study, do you know what his conclusion was? Here it is. The original call in verse 2 must have been simply, go take for yourself a wife and build a family with her. So after four to five pages of lexical studies, his conclusion is the text of the Bible is wrong. Uh, No, I'm sorry, he's wrong. Let me give you the best argument that I know to prove that Hosea was commanded to marry a harlot. He married Gomer, and Gomer meets the definition of a harlot. That's verse 2. English on the top, Hebrews at the bottom. The Hebrews there for a reason. First thing I want you to note, go take. I highlight the word take. It's highlighted in the top and on the bottom for a reason. That is a Hebrew imperative. It is not a suggestion. It is a command. He is being commanded to take a woman of harlotry and to have children with her. The implication is there. He is to marry her. That is what the command says. 
That's not an interpretation. That's what it says. And that command is given by Yahweh. And in fact, Yahweh is mentioned twice in this passage. When the Lord, Yahweh, spoke through Hosea, Yahweh said, this is a command given by Yahweh, given to Hosea. And it's very specific. Go find a woman of harlotry and marry her. If the commentators are right, and Gomer was faithful, and she was pure prior to marrying Hosea, let me ask you a question. How can Hosea obey the command? He was commanded to marry a woman who is marked by infidelity and immorality. How does he know that Gomer meets the qualifications if she was pure at that time? How does he follow the command? How does he obey? He can't. The only way he could obey is if, one, she was pure before the marriage, and God specifically told him, go marry the woman named Gomer. Then he would know she's unfaithful. She's going to be unfaithful. But is that in the text? No, it's not. To come to that conclusion, you would have to read that into the text. So the second way he could obey this is if Gomer was actively participating in harlotry. And he went and he went to the town where she was living, and maybe she was walking the street, she was working at the temple, whatever. It was clear by her lifestyle that she was immoral. Now he knows how to obey the command. The third option is that Gomer was known in the area as being immoral. I think of the woman at the well. She's just known for her behavior. Those are the only three possibilities that he would be able to obey this command. If Hosea married a faithful woman, if he married a woman that was living a pure life, did he obey God's command? No, he didn't. Because the command is very clearly, go marry someone who's unfaithful. And there's no mention of him being disobedient, is there? Nowhere in this book or any other book do, are we told that Hosea was in some way disobedient to, to Yahweh. And not only does it not say that Hosea was disobedient, the Hebrew grammar here indicates that he did exactly what he was told to do. Verse 2, you get the command. Verse 3, So he went out, took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. There's a key word I want you to note here. So, I don't know if you guys can see that little thing over there. I'm tempted to give Michael a Hebrew quiz real quick, but I won't do that to him. What that little thing is over here, it's called a wayiktol. It's a conjunction. This is a very important conjunction. It's one of the key indicators of a narrative. It's how we know Genesis 1 is a narrative, because you have a string of these. It shows consecutive chronological action. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. One thing followed the next. So you could translate verse 3, then he went and took Gomer. 
There's nothing in between these two events. He was given the command to marry an immoral woman. The very next verse, he follows the command. He does exactly what he's told. And the only way he could do that is if Gomer was immoral when he met her. Does that make sense? Everybody following me? All right, any questions on our interpretive challenge here? Our interpretive issue? That's a lot for one little interpretive issue. Yes, ma'am. If you use some discernment, most of them, these are, I got the six ones that I could find were most recommended by people I trust. So even, even Charles Feinberg, who is generally really good, came to the conclusion she must have been pure before she was married. So you, you just have to use some discernment. Yeah. Could it be just the fact that she wasn't a virgin or did it have to go further? It had to go further. Um, this is talking about someone who is immoral. Well, that would be immoral. Yeah. It could be that, yeah. And it's not only commentary, but many churches teach and teach the views that you just mentioned. Yeah. He, he said that a lot of churches teach this, and they do. I guess we take our view of it and we say, well, I would never recommend my son marry an immoral woman. And so how is God going to recommend this? But that's not to say that this is somehow immoral for God to do it. Would it be sort of in a different venue? Would it be immoral for God to say, go out and wipe out the men, the women, the children, the animals, everything? He said to Saul, he said, wipe them all out. Leave yeah. nothing alive. That impugn God's character. Yeah. In our mind, we tend to think that that is not God, but no, that is His love and courage. You know, something that's got to be wrong. Yeah. And I think it's just we're taking our presuppositions and superimposing them onto God rather than letting the text tell us who and what God is. Yes, sir. And that is the point that God is making. He's, he's making the point, Hosea is taking the place of God, and Gomer is taking the place of Israel. And he's using that to show that Israel has been unfaithful. They have gone off into harlotry. And let me catch up to where I am on my notes here. Now, I do want to note, now that we've gotten to verse 3 here, Hosea is given a command in verse 2. And he goes in verse 3 and he immediately obeys the command. You notice he didn't question God. You notice Hosea didn't turn back to God like Moses and say, yeah, but Lord, you don't understand. If I go back to Egypt, they're going to kill me. And God said, don't worry about it. I can, I can take care of that. Yeah, but Lord, if I go back to Egypt, they won't listen to me. I'll take care of that, Moses. Just calm down. But Lord, I stutter. I can't do this. I'll take care of it, Moses. Hosea doesn't do that. He doesn't turn back to God and say, but Lord, look what everyone will say about me. 
He doesn't say, but Lord, I don't think you should do this. This isn't good. I wouldn't do this. Why were, what? He gets the command and he obeys it. The command is given and he immediately goes out and fulfills. No delay. Delayed obedience is disobedience. If you're not willing to do it when God tells you to do it, that's disobedience. Hosea shows that a godly man or a woman is humble and submissive to what God says. So why does God want him to marry a harlot? Back in verse 2, Go take for yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. Before we get into this, I do want to mention children of harlotry. He's not being insulting to the children. He's not saying there's anything inherently wrong with the children. He's just saying that day and age, the children picked up the stigma of their parents. And they were considered to be children from, that were a byproduct of an immoral person. And God is going to demonstrate to Hosea and to us the unfaithfulness of the kingdom of Israel. And Hosea is going to receive firsthand experience of what it's like for him to love someone and to have that love betrayed. He's going to see somewhat of how God feels every time Israel turns their back on Yahweh. And he's going to do that by having this faithful, obedient man of God marry a woman who's going to break his heart. A woman who will betray him, who will refuse to be faithful to him. Hosea will be faithful to her. And she will return that by chasing after other lovers. And he's going to use this to prove that Israel is engaged in harlotry, that they are being unfaithful. Harlotry was used to describe spiritual idolatry, turning away from Yahweh and chasing after other gods. Exodus 34, 16, And you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters might play the harlot with other gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with other gods. Going after other gods throughout the Old Testament is described as a form of harlotry, unfaithfulness, impurity. And the fall of the northern kingdom is specifically linked to religious harlotry. If you'll go back to the book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings 17. And I need some volunteers who would like to read. Who would like to read? I need some people who can read aloud. Mike, would you do... um, Michael Tate, would you do uh, verses 6 and 7? Who else? Autumn, would you do uh, 9 through 12? And I need someone to read verse 16. Owen? Now, in my Bible, right before verse 7, it says, why Israel fell. That should be a good indicator. Uh, Verses 6 and 7. Yes, sir. Thank you. 
Okay? Notice it says, thank you. Notice it's talking about the northern kingdom of Israel when they fell and they were carried away. That happened in 722. We talked about that last week. Uh, Verses 9 through 12. Thank you. Notice idolatry is at the heart of why Israel fell. Uh, verse 16. You guys remember last week we talked about the two roads that were leading down to Jerusalem? Jeroboam the first went to Dan and Bethel, these two towns on these roads, and he built altars and high places there and temples. And in each of those temples, he built a golden calf. And he said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Remember that? That's what he's talking about. Okay, we can go back to Hosea. Israel is God's unfaithful spouse. God remained faithful to them, but they turned their backs on him, and they went after other gods. And now Hosea is going to deliver God's message of judgment. And again, he's going to do this with personal experience. He's going to have some skin in the game. He's going to have firsthand experience of betrayal. Verse 3, Hosea marries Gomer, and she bears him a son. And here again, I'm not going to go into all the details. Commentators will say, this child does not belong to Hosea. It's a child of harlotry, which means Gomer went out and had a child with another man. That is not what the text says. The text says she bore to him a son. The him relates back to Hosea, not to another man. There's no reason to read that into the text. All right, let's get to verse 4. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel. For yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Verse 3 says, Gomer bore to Hosea children. Verse 4, we learn about the first child, which is a son. And this brings us to point number two on your handout. Israel's past bloodshed. Israel's past bloodshed, verses 4 and 5. Hosea is to give this child the name Jezreel. Now notice it's Hosea who is to name the child. This was a right only of the biological father. The father names the child. If Jose is not the father, he shouldn't be naming this child. Why would he name him Jezreel? Well, the name is intended to reveal a coming judgment on the house of Jehu. Jehu is a king, and his son is currently reigning. And the judgment is a response to the bloodshed of Jezreel. What's he talking about here? Jehu... Became, a king, became the king of the north after he was commissioned by God to end the dynasty of King Ahab. Anybody remember the name King Ahab? Anybody? One? Two? Was he a good king or a bad king? 
not very good at all. Ahab was an evil king. 1 Kings 16, verse 30. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Ahab was an idolater. 1 Kings 16, 33 says he made an Asherah, and he provoked the Lord more than all the other kings. It says he was worse than Jeroboam I, and Jeroboam I was pretty bad. Ahab was also a very greedy man. He was so greedy that he saw the vineyard of a guy named Naboth in 1 Kings 21. And he saw the vineyard, and he goes over to this man as a king, and he tells Naboth, um, I want your vineyard. You need to give me your vineyard. Not, I want to buy it from you. No, just give it to me. And Naboth said, look, this vineyard is inheritance from my father. I'm not giving you my vineyard. And so Ahab, like a real strong man, he goes home and he pouts. And he's having a little pity party, and his wife comes home. Anybody remember who Ahab's wife is? Jezebel. Another model of virtue. Jezebel comes home, she sees her husband upset, and she says, Dearest husband, what's the matter? And he cries and says, Naboth won't give me the vineyard. I'm putting my dramatic emphasis for effect here. Thank you. Well, Jezebel does what any loving wife would do. She plots to murder Naboth, right? That's just what you do. You've hurt my husband, you've hurt his little feelings, and now you need to die. And so she sets up this incredible little scheme to kill Naboth. And the scheme works. Naboth is dead. And Ahab is now happy. Because now he trounces in there and takes over the vineyard. It's now his vineyard. So God sends the prophet Elijah to go talk to Ahab. And the prophet Elijah shows up, and for the sake of time, we're not going to go through it. It's in 1 Kings 21, and his message starts in verse 18. Essentially, God says this, look, I'm going to kill Jezebel as a judgment for this. And the dogs are going to lick up her blood. And then I'm going to kill Ahab. And not only am I going to kill Ahab, but I'm going to cut off his descendants. Your dynasty and the king as king is over. Your descendants will not maintain the throne. Uh, that's in 1 Kings 21, 22 through 23. And Ahab hears the message of God's judgment, and he actually does something right. He covers himself in dust and ashes. He humbles himself before God, and he fasts. And we're led to believe that this is a genuine repentance on his part, that he genuinely is broken over this. And we think that because God responds to this outward act of repentance. 1 Kings 21, 29. Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? God speaking. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. God says, look, I'm not going to destroy your kingdom with you. I'm going to wait till one of your sons. And by the way, son can refer to his first son or a grandson or a great-grandson. And it is Jehu 
the person mentioned here in one, Hosea 1, 1.4, that was commissioned by God to bring about this judgment. Jehu was told in 2 Kings 9 to go and to kill the descendants of Ahab. Here's when he said, You shall strike the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free, in Israel. 2 Kings 9, 8 and 9. Jehu is ordered to go and to kill Ahab and all of his family, including Jezebel. Kill their current king. The current king is the great-grandson of Ahab. His name is Joram. You're to kill him. And then you will take over as king. So Jehu decides, well, I'm going to go obey the Lord. And he starts looking for where Joram is. Joram is in the valley of Jezreel. His army is fighting. He went to the valley of Jezreel for something else. And Jehu goes to the valley of Jezreel and he hunts down Joram and he kills the king, just as God commanded him to do. But while he's there, he gets a little piece of information. And the piece of information he gets is Ahaziah is also in the valley of Jezreel. Ahaziah is the king of Judah. He's the king of the south. So Jehu's thinking about this. Well, I'm going to be the king of the north. That's the king of the south. Political maneuvering time. He goes and he kills Ahaziah as well. And he kills members of the family. That's in 2 Kings 9, 27 through 32. He did all of this killing in the valley of Jezreel. And so here in Hosea 1.4, Hosea is prophesying about a coming judgment on the house of Jehu for the bloodshed in the valley of Jezreel because he went and killed the king of Judah when he wasn't supposed to. And he killed a whole bunch of his family too. Hosea 1.4, Name him, speaking of the son, Jezreel. For yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. How is God going to punish the house of Jehu? He's going to do it by killing his descendant, who is currently king of Israel. The king of Israel at that time is Jeroboam II. At the end of the verse, God says he will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. When does that happen? Well, we just read it. Out of, uh, that happens, um, excuse me, we didn't read it. That happens in 722. We talked about this last week. When the Assyrians come in and take over and wipe out the northern kingdom and they carry everybody off into deportation. Hosea uh, 1, verse 5. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. The dynasty will end the same way it began. Jehu's dynasty began in the valley of Jezreel, and it will end in the valley of Jezreel in judgment. Okay, that's child number one.
Child number two on your handout. Israel is undeserving of compassion. That should be verses six and seven. Israel is undeserving of compassion. Child number two is a girl. Let's look at verse six. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. Um, she conceived again as a reference to Gomer. The Lord said to him, Helm refers to Hosea, and again the father names the child. Hosea names this child. Hosea is the father of the second child. And again, I say that because the commentaries try to convince you otherwise. And once again, the name of the child says a lot. Lo Ruhama. It's a phrase, the most rigid translation, it means no mercy or no compassion. And it describes God's view of Israel, not Hosea's view of his daughter. This is how God views the nation of Israel. Why was he to say no mercy, no compassion? Look at verse 6. For I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. No more mercy. No more compassion. This would have knocked the wind out of the people of Israel. The statement is meant to be shocking. It's meant to set them back on their heels. What makes the statement so shocking? Why do you think this is so shocking to the nation of Israel? They believe that they are the chosen ones. They, yeah, they believe they're the chosen ones. Why else? Okay. Yeah, if, if you just look on the surface level, they could come to the conclusion, well, maybe we're not the chosen ones anymore. Why else would this be so shocking? Think about what God has said about himself in the past. What has God said about himself? He's compassionate. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the grandchildren, to the third and fourth generation. God is compassionate. He's merciful. Lamentations 3.22. His mercies are renewed every morning. And not only has God already revealed himself to be a compassionate and merciful God, but notice he doesn't say, I will have no compassion on you unless you repent. There's not even an offer that if you repent, I'll forgive. He doesn't even leave the possibility of compassion later. It's not there. He says, I will never have compassion on them, and I will not forgive their sin. This is not God being unjust or unkind. This is a promise of justice to the nation of Israel. 
God is going to give them what they deserve. They don't deserve his mercy. They don't deserve his compassion. The Mosaic law said that unfaithfulness resulted in judgment and cursing. That's what the law said. That's what it promised. And they are guilty before the law, and they are deserving of God's justice. God's compassion has run out. The time is up. Payment is due. And they're going to get what they deserve. And that judgment would ultimately come in the fall of the nation and their deportation to other nations. But, but, look at verse 7. That's how verse 7 starts. But, what, have you ever thought how different scripture would be if it didn't have words like that in it? Can you think of any other places where there's a, a but that you really are glad it's there? Yeah, I, I was thinking of, yeah, I was thinking about Ephesians where he says, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're serving of judgment, but God being rich in mercy. God's compassion is still here. Verse 7, but I will have compassion on the house of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, and deliver them by the Lord, their God, and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. Judah will face a time of trial. They're going to be attacked. And God is going to supernaturally preserve that nation, at least for a little while. And he says, I will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. I'm not going to use an army to deliver them. God himself is going to bring about the deliverance. This happened around 701 B.C. when Yahweh defeated Sennacherib. You remember the Assyrians came and attacked Jerusalem? And Hezekiah goes to God and says, would, would you do something, please? And God sends an angel, and the angel kills 185,000 soldiers in one night. Remember that story? It's out of 2 Kings 19. Was Judah innocent? Did the southern kingdom deserve his compassion and his mercy? No, they were just as guilty. So why did Judah receive mercy? Why did Judah get the compassion and Israel didn't? Exodus 33, 19, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. Israel is going to receive God's justice because that's what God wants to do. They don't deserve his compassion. They deserve his judgment. And God is going to give them that. You and I do not deserve God's compassion. We deserve his judgment. And he can give to us either judgment or mercy. Thank goodness he decided to give us mercy. That's child number two. You're talking about the house of Israel? I, I took that as the northern kingdom. 
All right, any other questions? Jezreel? Uh, that's the Valley of Jezreel, where um, Jehu killed the, the king of the south. Because God is going to bring judgment on the house of Jehu. And so he's going to name him Jezreel to remind them of where that bloodshed occurred. All right, let's go to child number three. This is also in your handout. Child number three, Israel's not worthy to be God's people. Israel's not worthy to be God's people. This is in verses 8 and 9. Let's look at verse 8. When she had weaned lo she conceived and gave birth to a son, and the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Hosea's third child is another son. And again, commentators will try to say this is not actually Hosea's son. Okay, you didn't get that from the text. The text says this is his son. He is naming the child. And just like the second child, just like the second daughter, his name is also instructive on how God views the people of Israel. Lo Ami. Rigidly. Not my people. That's what it means. As one commentator wrote, this was a blood-curdling revelation. For an Israelite to hear, you are not my people from Yahweh, was a really hard thing to hear. And if the name wasn't shocking enough, he drives it home with two more statements. For you are not my people. God has disowned Israel. I'm done. And then he says, I am not your God. And literally in the Hebrew, it's, I am not yours. You are not mine, and I am not yours. This amounts to a divine disowning of the nation of Israel. God is declaring a divorce from his unfaithful spouse. Exactly how we would expect a husband in that day to respond to an unfaithful wife. It's shocking. It's amazing, incredible, and terrifying. The only thing more amazing, the only thing more shocking than a statement that you are not my people, that I am not your God, which is a reversal of everything he's already told them, is the complete opposite of what everything God has already told them. He told them before, I'm going to take you into the wilderness and you will be my people and I will be your God. And now he says, no, not, not anymore. The only thing more shocking than that is in verse 10 and verse 11. Remember how last week we talked about Hosea reverses things rapidly? Here it is. You are not my people. You are not, I am not your God, verse 10. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Let me start out by pointing out the first word, yet. 
Again, this could be translated, but. God now points back to a previous covenant. What covenant is he pointing back to? Anybody know? The Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12. Genesis 22. Genesis 32. Where he promised to bless and to care for an incalculable number of chosen people. Verse 10 again. He says, which cannot be measured. He told Abraham, I will make you a great nation. And you will bless all the nations of the world. Verse 10 again. Which cannot be measured and numbered, and in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. This is talking about a future restoration. Israel will be restored. In the place where it was said to you, you are not my people. Where was that said to them? In the land. In the land that God promised them. They were in the land, and he says, right where I've just said this, I'm going to say something different to you in the future. And what is he going to say to them in the future? You are the sons of the living God. This brings us to point number five. Israel will be the sons of God. You're not just my people anymore. I'm not just your king anymore. Remember, that was the whole issue in, the, in 1 Samuel, was they didn't want God to be their king anymore. He's not their king anymore. He's going to have a new relationship. They're going to have a new status. They're not his people. They're his children. He's going to take the place of a father, members of a family. This is grace and mercy that we would not expect from any person. This is also why, in my opinion, I cannot be an amillennialist. Because the whole presupposition there is God's promises to Israel were forfeited when Israel disobeyed. Did Israel disobey here? Well, yeah. Was Israel unfaithful? Of course. Do they deserve to be cut off? Yes. Do they deserve every judgment God is promising them? Absolutely. Does any of that undo the Abrahamic covenant? Not according to Hosea 1.10. The promises that God made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to the, son, the fathers of Israel, those promises are still good. God is still faithful to the promises that he made. Look at verse 6. Oh, I'm sorry, not verse 6. Let's go on to verse 11. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one leader. And they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. This brings us to point number six on your outline. A united Israel will be restored. A united Israel will be restored. At the time of this prophecy, Israel, the nation, was not united. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The tribes were split. 
Judah was to the south. The other ten tribes were the north. Simeon was kind of mixed in in the south. There was two kings. There was infighting. There was political intrigue and assassination. But God is promising a time in the future where there will be no division. And they will appoint for themselves a king. A king over the entire nation. Verse 11, he says, they will go up from the land. It's a debated statement. I think it's referring to leaving the dispersion and coming back to the nation of Israel. They're going to come back to the promised land. They're going to come back and they're going to have a united kingdom under one king. What is that talking about? The Messiah. It's a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. The promises made in 2 Samuel 7. When God promised to David, one of your descendants will sit on the throne, on your throne in an earthly kingdom. It's exactly what he's promising. Turn over to Hosea chapter 3. Look at verse 5. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Why do you think he mentioned David the king? Same reason that in Matthew 1 in the genealogy he mentions David the king. And he mentions David more than anyone because Matthew's trying to prove that Jesus is the coming king. Some other cross-references if you want to go look at them. Jeremiah 23, 5-8, Ezekiel 34, 23. Those are on your handout. They also discuss this. God made promises, unilateral, sovereign, unconditional promises. He made them to Abraham. He made them to David. Those promises were not dependent upon the nation of Israel's obedience. Why? Because God knew they weren't going to be obedient in the first place. And you don't have to wonder if I'm guessing on that. End of Deuteronomy. What did Moses tell them? You're going to go into the land and you're going to be perfectly faithful, right? No, he said, you're going to go into the land and you're going to run after other gods. And God's going to deport you. Joshua 24, Joshua says, choose who you'll serve. And the people said, we'll serve Yahweh. And Joshua responded back to them, you're right, you will. No, he responded back to them, no, you won't. You're going to be unfaithful. God knew they were going to be unfaithful from the very word go. Which is also another reason why Hosea had to know that Gomer was a harlot. She had to be unfaithful. That's the only way he would know. The metaphor works perfectly. Okay. So if God is going to restore them, if God is going to show them mercy eventually, why all the judgment passages? Why do we need to go through these three kids and hear about no compassion and not my people? Why, why do we need that? Why did Israel need that? Well, is God changing his mind? Did God have a sudden shift in opinion here between verses 9 and 10? No. He's not changing his mind. The judgments are an expression of his hatred of sin. And they're intended to demonstrate that hatred and to prove that hatred.
And those judgments, those promises of judgment, are intended to bring about repentance. This is not a judicial judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah received a judicial judgment. God just wiped them out. And there was no hope of restoration. There was no hope of repentance. They just died. This is not judicial punishment. This is parental. This is a loving father chastening his child to bring about the holiness and the discipline that they need. Just like the promises of restoration, the judgments of God are evidence of his astounding love for his nation and for his people. God has made you promises. If you can't believe that God made promises to Israel and kept them when they were unfaithful, how are you going to believe in the New Testament when it says, we are unfaithful, but he remains faithful? If God's promises to Israel are not still true and still valid, then the promises of the New Covenant are not valid for you when you fall in sin. Does that make sense? Good news. His promises to Israel are still valid. He's still faithful to everything he has promised, which means you can trust everything he's promised to you in the new covenant. He will do exactly that. Any questions, comments, concerns, gripes, moans, groans, complaints? And I think that's kind of all of us. Um, we have to, we're like kids, and we need to be disciplined. We need God to correct us. And that's what Israel needed. Any other comments? Yes, Calvin? I think that's referring to their um, their willing acceptance of the Messiah, not necessarily them saying we're going to choose this guy. Um, you think of Old Testament passages like uh, where he talks about they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn. Um, I think that's referring mainly to their um, their reception of him rather than them appointing him as if they were choosing. Any other? Comments, questions? Yeah. So if I understand your question, because they were deported, did we lose track of which tribes are which? Is that your question? Okay. Yeah. So they knew which tribes they were. If you go to Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll see parts where people wanted to be a priest. And some of them couldn't be priests because they couldn't prove their genealogy. They had records to prove their lineage. Um, we don't know what the tribes are today. 
but that's not connected back to this deportation. That's connected back to 70 AD when the Romans ransacked Jerusalem. They destroyed all the records of the genealogies, so we don't have those records anymore. So when they came back from this deportation, they had records. They don't have them today because of what happened in 70 AD. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah, they were the ten, the ten northern tribes were all deported and they went all over the place, and then God brought them back, and you see that in Ezra and Nehemiah. Does that answer? The, am I getting that right? Am I getting the question correct? Okay. He was saying that through the Bible there's a lot of what appears to be delusion. I heard someone recently say, say sin makes you stupid. It's a good saying. He's sitting over there. He said it. Um, but that's really what it is. I mean, it's a sinful nature, and it deceives us and makes us think that we're better than what we are. So, All right, I'm over time, so let's pray real quick, and then we'll be done. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that... Uh, you are a God who makes promises, and you keep those promises. You have made covenants, and you are faithful to keep those, even when we are unfaithful. And we thank you that you have given us your word, that we can learn about you, that we can grow closer to you. And we just ask that you would be with us this morning in our worship, and that uh, you would be pleased and glorified in it. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.